Titus. We're going to finish Titus up. I know Joe covered the first three verses to chapter 3. I'm actually going to go back as I finish up. I'm going to pull uh, verse 3 back into what I'm going to do because it's part of a paragraph that begins in verse 3 through verse 7. Um, and, and to remember and remind ourselves that, you know, Paul wrote this letter, you know, after his first Roman imprisonment, which ends in the book of Acts, you know, which is in the book of Acts. Um, he wrote 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. And next week we'll start 2 Timothy. But uh, in doing so, he, he's dealing with false teachers. And he's dealing with a problem that is coming to the churches. Uh, and, he, and this one's the church at Crete, and he left Titus there. And a lot of times, the, the false teaching or the problems was the result of a lack of true servant leadership. And so one of the things that we see Paul do is explain to them, this is what you have to do. You've got to get things in order. You've got to deal with the false teaching. You've got to get things in order. So we're going to see a little bit of that uh, uh, tonight. And chapter 3, verse 3 through 7 is one long sentence in the Greek. It's probably not in your English version. And he says this, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending their life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Um, I know Joe covered it. I'm going to cover it real quickly. Foolish and disobedient kind of go together and deceived and enslaved go together. We are foolish, so we are deceived. We are disobedient, so we are enslaved. And that's kind of how the combination goes. In the course of, and he's talking to believers, um, or people who pertain to be believers. In the course of our rebellion against God, in the course of our being going astray, we find ourselves in a position in life where foolish and disobedient, we end up being enslaved and deceived, enslaved to lust and pleasures, you know, enslaved to the things of the world. I spent a, a long time, in, uh, obviously, in uh, January talking about the serious collision with the culture around us. And it is so easy for us to get trapped in that culture. And I get it. I mean, there, there are some things, you know, out there that are fun, that you enjoy, things that are okay, that are wholesome. And, but it's so easy just to get trapped and to find yourself um, thinking that you can, you can somehow serve God and serve the culture or serve yourself. It, it, it isn't, we all go down that road sometimes. You know, I've been, in my life, I've gone down that road. God, I got this. I can handle this. I can do both without crossing that line. Until you cross that line. And then all of a sudden you find yourself enslaved uh, to some of those things. I know a lot of pastor friends of mine um, who have gotten themselves in trouble. I know guys who I don't know uh, as pastors who have got themselves in trouble. Thinking I can walk that fine line. And they don't mean to. It's not their desire. But the next thing they know, they have crossed the line. It's not, maybe it's not necessarily disastrous. I'm not saying they had an affair or anything like that. But they just find themselves struggling in areas they shouldn't have to struggle. And he says, you, just, you have to be careful. We were once that way, he says. This once described you in your sinful state. It doesn't need to describe you now. This is how you were. Don't be this way. We spend our life in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. That's a pretty good way to describe a lot of people we know, especially people who are lost. They hate and they are hated. You don't, you don't want that creeping into your life. You don't want that bitterness in your life. I think one of the things that I deal with a lot with Christians is they struggle with bitterness and how to leave it behind. And I get that. 
they struggle in, in those areas. And some of them struggle with because they have people who don't like them and they get worried about that. And one of the things I try to tell them is you can't worry about people liking you or not. That's really out of your control. And so you don't want to get trapped as a believer in that world. That, by the way, is kind of the way that the false teachers were following. Notice what he says in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, when the kindness, the word kindness speaks just to the goodness of God. The word love is not the word agape. It's actually the word that we get our term philanthropy from. It's just a tenderness and a kind-heartedness. When the very nature of God, who is our Savior, this is before he is called God Savior, for mankind appeared, for all of humanity, not just for you, but for all of humanity, when it appeared, notice what it says. He saved us. That phrase, saved us, is the main verb in this rather lengthy sentence from 3 through 7. And it is really, at, at the essence of the Christian faith, many think that these next few lines, in fact, all of verse 3 through 7 is a really great summary of Paul's theology about what it means to be a follower of Christ. But the idea is that he saved us. And in him saving us, there is no place or room for us to ever think we saved ourselves. The word saved is it's just a word that means to rescue, to deliver. There are a lot of times that, you know, I'll take some really churchy words and I try to, and I, I may change, I'll use something else, same thing. I can do a lot for sin. I use the word sin a lot, but, but I don't use it as much as I used to. I'll talk about rebellion against God, which is the same thing. And actually saying rebellion against God gives some clarity because people have so many weird, people who are lost uh, have, which is another word I don't use a lot, but people who are lost have so many weird and unusual ideas of what sin is, okay? But there's no other way to describe salvation than say. There's no other term that I use to describe what happens to us. We are saved, and we are, and it's by God. And it's out of all of the things we've left behind or should leave behind. He saves us. Saved us. And notice what he says. Because then he gets, he gets a little theology in here. He didn't save us on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness or in self-righteousness. In other words, he didn't save us based on what we can do. This is the fundamental belief of the world in which we live. That you determine your ultimate destiny and outcome in life. Whether they believe in salvation or eternal life or not, and, and most people do believe in some type of eternal life, they believe that ultimately you decide how that happens based on your deeds and your works and who you are. Um, it's just, and, and we see it creep in to our faith all the time and to Christianity. Uh, we, we, we have to do good deeds. He's going to mention that in a minute. But at some point, we can never let the idea that we somehow save ourselves. And, you know, this is what I deal with most with people who are, are lost, is that they ultimately believe that they're going to have to earn it or be good enough to get there. And it's disheartening because we know there's nothing they can do to earn it. And there's no way they can be good enough. And sometimes we're guilty of giving that idea out. One of the things I talk about a lot to us who are believers 
is be careful that you don't put in the mind of a non-follower of Christ, of a lost person, that somehow they have to change before they can come to Jesus. We all preach that we don't do any good works. And how many times have I seen in Baptist churches things like, well, you know, if that person, that lost person would just quit this, just quit that, if they would just do this, if they would just do that, they could get right with God. And and, and I don't even realize they say it. If they would be more like us, they would be more acceptable to God. And what I found is a lot of times people who are lost don't want to be more like us. I don't know that I want to be more like us. There's a lot of us that I don't really want to be like. I like this us, but, you know, some of you I can't really claim. But I I think it's hard for us because I know we want to help people. I get that. And a lot of times we're coming from a good place. We want to help them deal with their addiction. We want to help them get past their marital problems. We want to help them get their self-esteem in their life, you know, in the right place. And so a lot of times what we try to do is help deal with their problems and, and try to somehow share, well, if you'll do these things, life will get better. And, and then maybe at that point you can kind of maybe sort of come to Jesus. Not that Jesus wants you to change before you can come to him. We're thinking we've got to get these things fixed. That they'll never come to Christ before they get this, their life fixed. And sometimes I'm guilty of that. I can't get them to Jesus until I get their life fixed. And over the last, really, decade, I've come to realize I think that way sometimes. Not that you have to get right with, not that you have to change your life and God will accept you, but that you'll not, probably never come to Jesus until you get certain things straight. And I've really come to realize more and more over the last decade plus, maybe, that you just got to come to Jesus. And, and here's what I also found. And this is going to sound like heresy. <laughs> so, I wrote, so many professors are going to roll over in the grave. Just because they come to Jesus doesn't mean their life will get fixed right away. Sometimes you got to help them fix their life. It can be a process. You've got to get them to Christ. Let him do the things that Jesus does. And then you've got to stick it out with them and disciple them and help them through the process. In Laredo, one of the guys that went to my church was a covenant missionary, he worked with a lot of Hispanic individuals. And he helped this guy who was involved in um, drugs. He was like a, it was a drug war, but he oversaw drugs come to Christ. And uh, once the guy came to Christ, and that was good, and he was working with him, and then he basically asked my friend, he said, now, I should probably start tithing off of my earnings from my drug business, correct? I'm like, well, yeah, I would think you should, but <laughs> it's a process sometimes. And we've got to help them through that process. And where a lot of people falter and a lot of churches struggle is we expect that when Christ comes in their life and we teach them, he changes everything. Not right away. He changes your soul. He changes your destination. 
And sometimes people's lives just flip right away. But addicts don't stop being addicts. Drunks don't stop being drunks. I say that from a family of drunks. Some of my family are alcoholics. Some are drunks. And the drunks said they were not alcoholics because alcoholics go to meetings. And I didn't know the difference, but I just went with it. <laughs> it's what they want to be called. And some people have a hard time breaking off relationships that are unhealthy. Because even Christians get involved in all that. And sometimes we have to work them through the process. But notice what else Paul says. That they are safe, not by their deeds. But notice what he says. It's an according to his mercy. Mercy, my, uh, and the guy, and, and, and Dr. Uri, who was over my doctoral process, said mercy is just God's love in action. You see, his, you see his love. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us exactly what we do deserve. Through that mercy of his, notice, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So as there's washing by the Holy Spirit, it brings one act, regeneration and renewing is one act, one thing, not two. Now, there's always discussion, is this involved because of baptism? And not that it would say that baptism saves you or anything like that, but is the baptism a symbol of this or is that something that happens internally? A lot of times, especially early church fathers, who always respect the early church fathers' view because they were closer to Christ, but there's a tendency to think that anytime we see anything about washing or water, that automatically refers to outward baptism. And it really doesn't. In this particular case, the Holy Spirit works inwardly in our life. I and mean, that's, that's the fundamental teaching that we have. So the renewing and the regeneration is probably best to, be, best to be understood as the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming our life. The idea of renewing is a new birth, to birth again. The idea of regenerating is to, to bring back to life. The concept of washing, uh, which, which is prevalent here, um, is the idea of cleansing. And so probably the best way to see this is when we're saved, there is the, the, the work, it's the service of cleansing that brings out a newness in our life of renewal, regenerate, reborn, all those things that it, it, it kind of means. And it's important because what, what, we're, what we, you know, when we do baptize, we teach that a person has died to sin and be raised back to a new life in Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that I try to help people who come to Christ understand is that you have been reborn and renewed. There has been a pure birth, a changing. You have been cleansed. You have a new nature. It doesn't mean the old problems go away. But you have a way now to deal with them. You have a new path you can take. And you have someone who will take you down that path. I find that helpful because there's a lot of people I care about who come to Christ who struggle. And there's a lot of people who I know who I care about who have not yet come to Christ. And what I really want to do is see them come to Christ, have that change in their life, and then maybe help them with the journey. And as I look back, especially at people that I've known and grown up with, people close to my own age and friends with, and I see where they're at in life, and some of them are going through struggles, similar to what I've gone through, some going through others. 
my really thing that matters to me is that they get to Jesus and have that transformation. And then let the process of Jesus play it out. They've been reborn. They've been renewed. You know, I was saved when I was nine. I really wasn't saved from much of anything. I wasn't a horrible sinner at nine. I mean, I look at some of our nine-year-olds, and I can see why people might think nine-year-olds can be horrible sinners. Some of those kids are, rah. None of your kids are grandkids. But still in my life, as I struggle through my journey, the thing that, that has happened is that I, I have a regenerate, reborn, renewed life. So that when I deal with the struggles and sins and temptations, I have the Holy Spirit within me, the means to overcome and to have victory. I, I'm fond of saying, I don't know why, as, as I, at the age I'm in now, I like to tell people more and more, I play what I call the long game. I play the big picture. And when it comes to people in their, work, in their life with Christ, I do the same thing. I used to think, man, I got to get that person saved today and get everything changed today. I don't think so anymore. I think there's a, there's a process involved. I mean, salvation occurs instantaneously, I know that. But I'm more concerned about ultimately getting them there. And so sometimes I really have to be willing to take that journey with them. And part of that journey is understanding there is going to be a regeneration and a rebirth. But it doesn't mean everything gets okay. But they have the Holy Spirit. And that's the secret. Notice, whom, the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Holy Spirit was richly. Now, you know, that's kind of redundant because, of course, the Holy Spirit is rich. But, but it's just the beautiful thing. He, rich, he, he gave us all the Holy Spirit we need through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I know some of our charismatic friends believe that you get the Holy Spirit later than salvation. If only that were taught in Scripture, they might be right. <laughs> I'm not going to say what I, I'm not going to say that. Excuse me, just a moment. My mind is there. There are a lot of things I want to tell you. I'm just filtering it out real quick. Okay. So he pours out the Holy Spirit richly. If he didn't give us the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior, at salvation, then he's not being rich, is he? Where's the grace of that? How can we be renewed and recleansed if we don't have the Holy Spirit at salvation? Jesus is our Savior. He gives that to us. So that, and the term so that speaks of result or purpose. We are, and this is Paul's favorite term about salvation, justified by grace. We would be made heirs. He loves that concept through the hope of eternal life. We have been justified. As I always like to point out, justification does not mean that we simply have been made right. That's sanctification. It means we have been declared right. It's a legal term. We were out of source with God. He has declared through his grace. We are right with him. Now notice, there are no good deeds in saving us. It is all grace. I'm going to talk about grace on Sunday. It is all the grace of God. And in his grace, he looks at us through Christ. And he declares us as being right with him. That's pretty cool. Because I can't do it. I can't imagine me 
having to make myself right before God. I know me. That ain't going to happen. That ain't even come close to happening. I like to think it would. My grandmother thought it could be possible. My mother knew it wasn't possible, but pretended it was. But by the grace of God, right. And because of that, I've inherited the hope of eternal life, life forever. This statement, the one he just made, is trustworthy. Concerning these things, I want to speak to you confidently with the result so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in, get this, good deeds. The good deeds didn't save us. But once we're justified, we do the good deeds. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Uh, yeah, Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, as a gift of God, not of works. Any man to boast, but for good deeds that we should do. Now, once we become a follower of Christ, those deeds, those good deeds, whatever it is, is the evidence that we have been justified or declared right by God. How do we know we're declared right by God? Well, we know internally and all that, but my life gives some evidence of that. And so, Paul is just reminding Titus, you've got to teach these people. And this is different than what the false teachers taught. This is salvation. This is orthodox Christian faith. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So do those good deeds and works that you're called to do. Um, these things are good and beneficial for people. But notice in verse 9, he's going back to the, the false teachers. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife. And disputes about the law, that's the Old Testament law, for they are useless and worthless. I love that. They're just useless. They have no value. They're worthless. Everything the false teachers are proclaiming is just worthless and useless. I, I do try not to get involved and sucked into too many um, arguments and controversies if I can avoid it because ultimately they're useless. They really are. And um, once in a while I have to. But Paul's saying all that's taught by the false teachers in their lifestyle, that is different than what our faith leads us to understand how we live. It's empty. It has no value. I think today, of one of the things I'm really disturbed about, and I've mentioned it many times, I will continue, is the whole prosperity gospel idea that God's desires for you, if you have enough faith, you'll be both wealthy and healthy and all those things. How utterly useless that is for eternity. It is a life of building up for yourself treasures on earth. It is a life that is self-focused. I need to be healthy and I need prosperity. Which is odd because Jesus wasn't prosperous on earth from a monetary standpoint. Paul wasn't. Paul wasn't healthy either. He had all sorts of problems. Some of the early church fathers described Paul. You would not want to look at him standing up here. He's kind of grotesque. How useless is that teaching? From the standpoint of your eternity. It only benefits those who get rich off of it. Which is why they all get rich off of it. Things that are false, sometimes you got to deal with them. I get that. But as much as possible, try to deal with that which is true. Let truth overcome falsehood. Now, I know sometimes you've got to deal with it. When I preach, I've got to deal with some of the things in the world today. And I get it, and I deal with it. 
But I prefer mostly to preach about Jesus saving you and grace and faith, you know, and following Christ rather than preach about all the negative stuff. Even when I did that series on collision, my main purpose wasn't to attack the culture. I do a little bit of that. My main purpose was to show why we need to follow Christ. That's a more effective means. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person has devoted, uh, deviated from what is right and is sinning, being self-condemned. You know, don't spend a lot of time. And if a person's just causing trouble, eventually you got to say, brother, this isn't the place for you. And, and the reason Paul says the first and the second time, it's like, after that, it ain't going to do any good. It didn't. Trust me. I had a lot of them in my churches over the years. At some point, it ain't going to change. This is not going to do any good. Encourage them. Love them. And from my standpoint, I like to point out there are a lot of churches that would love to have them. So I lie, but I still want them to go. That's not my problem. They have to deal with them. They send me their problems. I want to send them theirs once in a while. You know, None of y'all were problems sent to us, okay? Let's double check. Okay. Too many Christians spend their life getting sucked into controversy and battles. Too many churches allow divisive people to hurt. And one of the things that surprised me when I came here, you have some divisive people here. Like, why? Why did you put up with that mess? Why did you save it for me to deal with? <laughs> don't, don't let that. It's what churches get hurt from the inside, from the people that are here. Not from the outside. At some point, you've got to say we love you, but if you're not going to get with it, get going. We'll be okay. We'll survive you. We have a few more minutes of that popping, then they'll fix it for Sunday. So he's going to wrap it up. I'll send Artemis or Tychicus to you. Make every effort to come to me, the Nicopolis. Nicopolis. Did I pronounce those correct? Yes, I did. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollo times on the way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people, one last time, he says this, must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so they will not be unproductive or unfruitful. Brian preached Sunday at the 945 and 11 o'clock service on bearing fruit. It was a fairly decent sermon. <laughs> we need to be productive. So he says, all who are with me greet you and greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be to you. I'm going to do 2 Timothy next week. Let me just say this about Titus. Titus is oftentimes an underappreciated book because it's kind of short. A lot of its content can be found in other places, and I get all that. But so much of what Titus, and, and, and I hate sometimes we have to do it over a period of weeks, even months, to get Titus in. Just sit down. You can read it in 15 minutes. And now I feel like I'll do something with my hair. You know. But if you'll read Titus in just a sitting a few times, and sometimes, you know, take a book. Titus is easy to do this too because it's, so, it's a short book. Just kind of pray through Titus. Just kind of as you read it, just kind of pray through it. Just take a, one day, just take 30, 40 minutes and just read it and pray through it. Because it's, it's so simple. But it reminds us so much 
of what it means to follow Christ, to have character, to believe the right things, to care about people, and to be careful against what is false. And it reminds us, while it's not okay to take people who are not followers of Christ and cast them aside, it is okay to take those who are false teachers and correct them and rebuke them, and if need be, cast them aside. And this one of the beauties about Titus is that it can speak to us in every generation. And I hope it will. So next week we'll start 2 Timothy. It's all another very short book. It'll take us a month, a couple of months probably to get through that. And uh, then we'll figure out what's left the rest of this uh, kind of study year. So, just again, good seeing you. See you Sunday. Hopefully. <laughs>